podcast one production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. Today I'm on the Gold Coast catching up with Paul Morris for what he likes to call bench racing. A couple of blokes talking cars, motorsport and good times. Ideally it would have taken place in the old school bar filled with cool race memorabilia at his Norwell Motorplex driver training facility located halfway between Surface Paradise and Brisbane. But it's early morning so I've met him at his place and he's made me a cup of tea instead. You'll hear a bit of a different side to the man once described as dirty, dangerous dude. Not soft as marshmallow, mind you. He doesn't do scripted stuff and prefers to speak his mind. That old Days of Thunder movie line about Rubbin's racing is Paul style and he's now doing some world-class coaching of the next generation. I began by asking where that nickname dude actually came from. I'd been to America in my early 20s and it was a very popular saying back then. So when I came back from America from a week's holiday, I just started calling everyone dude. <laughs> so then I got the nickname dude and then it really stuck when myself and Jeff Fool got on the podium at uh, in the 1600 class in 1991 and Fully and me got up there and went, hey dudes, and <laughs> that's, that's how it stuck. Amazing. So you're racing... I mean, you've touched on the success there at, at Bathurst, and we'll cover that in the in the chat. But I mean, you've done some vastly different forms of of racing over a, a massive career, mate. What sparked the interest in it, though? And and can you tell me, did your dad Terry race at all, or was there an involvement from that side? Yeah, he's always been into racing, and uh, what, he was one of the founding members of the Gippsland Car Club, where the Morwell Hill Climb was. So him and his mates built that. Uh, so my earliest memories of going there as a, like a four or five-year-old being at the hill climb, being very involved in, in running it like you would in a club atmosphere. And Dad was the, the club champion at all diff- disciplines. He was a pretty pretty accomplished racer. Then he built and bought this Zefska sports car that he raced before I was born. That car is – my godfather still has that car and it still runs. So that's an Oscar-bodied car. Um, tube frame chassis with a supercharged Zephyr engine in it. That car's sort of still in the family. And, uh, and period correct? It's, it's yeah, as period it was. correct. So my godfather, Russell Budge, who when they were building the car at the time, mum and dad were living in a in a garage in someone's house in a street in Moorwell, Victoria, and the, Russell was the kid three doors down, the 12-year-old kid that helped them build the car. So he now has that car, so... Maybe it'll be Nash's one day. <laughs> we'll talk about Nash later on. Hey, my first recollections of you racing is in the Gemini series, which we'll talk about in a second. But I'm led to believe, in fact, it was an E.H. Holden that you ran at the Gold Coast Speedway, not all that far from where we're recording this this chat. Is that true? And give us some more of the specs on the on the E.H. and how it all went. Yeah, it was a, a big thing at the time. Uh, they called them bombers in Queensland, so you had two... You had a someone sitting beside you as well um i was just left school i was working as a boat fitter at stessel boats uh the guys that were working there at the time raced bombers so i was like 
oh, this is fantastic. So I started going along with them and being the guy sitting in the left seat. What did you do in that role? Uh, well, first of all, I was the only guy in a, a Series 2 Land Rover with a Holden engine in it, and I was the only guy that had a car that could tow the car trailer. So <laughs> <laughs> that was my role to, role to start with. I think we'd do two or three trips to the to the track because it was 10 minutes to the track from, from Southport where the cars were. And then naturally um, I just thought, well, I've got to get my own car and um, build up an, e- an E.H. Holden. I think I owe me about 200 bucks and I raced that thing for two years. Uh, yeah, it was great. So Speedway, which actually you would come back to in, in your later life anyway with some, some sprint car racing. What was the, the kind of horsepower, six-cylinder engine? Obviously the E.H. was an iconic Holden too, wasn't it? Yeah, so standard street saloons it was, um, stock motor. So you were racing... EHs, HR Holdens, some guys in Falcons, a few Valiants, you know, whatever. Rubbins racing? Yeah, it was plenty of that going on. <laughs> and you'd just work on the car all week and, and try and get it fixed and ready again to, to go and race the next Saturday night is sort of what, what we did, work on the cars at night and work, get ready all Saturday and then race Saturday night and then that, that was our week for, for a long time and it was it's a fantastic way to grow up here on the Gold Coast because you know, most, most people I know had a, had a bomber. Like, that's what you did on a Saturday night. So some guys even just drove them to the track. Did that mechanical experience kind of lay the foundations for you, serve you well even to this day? Yeah, it did. I was always messing around in the shed and and parts and, part, you know, you used to find those things lying on the road. You'd be driving along and someone had abandoned one, so that, that'd be your next race car, you know? <laughs> Tell me about the move into um, the Gemini series because that was so popular here in in Queensland. As I said before, it's my earliest recollections of you. What shape Gemini was it? Coupe or four door? TX, TC? What was it? I mean, they're uh, only a little one point six liter Isuzu powered thing. Weren't they? Yeah, the first one I had was a four door. Um, I reckon. I'm trying to think. It was an ad in the Gold Coast Bulletin, and I was sitting there with Dad. And he and he saw it. And he said, "Oh, let's go and buy that." So that that stage, our business had started to get a little bit better. Um, we'd started our mail order business, and I'd crossed over from being working at Stessel Boats to to working with Dad in the in the mail order business. So that's uh, what we did. We went and bought the Gemini. Uh, was it an existing race car? Yeah, it was an existing race car, and come to and it was. It was probably a bit of a shitbox. We didn't know what, what we were buying, but we bought it and, and I went and raced and I think I come like mid-12th or 13th in the first race and and then I crashed it in in the next practice. It was wet and I was hot-dogging out there at the at the thing and showing off in the wet in practice and shoved the thing in the fence. So then then we had to build another one. What were the skills that you that you learned from that? Because, I mean, you, I mean they, I think they came out stock with, like, 75 horsepower. They weren't a hugely powerful thing, but there was uh, there was just masses of them when you when you raced. How did you get the edge in the end? I mean, you won Rookie of the Year in your first season, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And that, that come to pass, well, basically you just bolted a roll cage in the thing. It was an aluminium cage. You bolted in the car, you buffed the tyres, and away you went. So it was very simple racing. You'd... You know, you could buy a Gemini road car there for between five and a thousand bucks. So five hundred thousand bucks, get yourself a car and go race, and that's why there was masses of them. Uh, but then, uh, then, I, then we sort of realised that we didn't have the skill set, and Troy Dunstan was uh-huh. was, was running up front, and I knew Troy because um, I raced with his with his brother at the, at the speedway. So Troy was a bit older than me, 
And then we went to Troy and like we were busy flat out with our business and said, how about we do a deal? I'll buy all the parts and you work, you build the cars. So that's how that, that relationship started. Work-wise back then, as you said, you kind of moved into the family business. What sort of role with marketing and things like that? What was the, the job and what was the daily drive that Paul Morris had back then? Oh, I still think I had that Land Rover, that old Land Rover. And uh, my, we started off a business selling um, cigarettes mail order. So in Queensland, there was no state tax on cigarettes. And if you remember back then, there was all these uh, trucks getting pinged for, for um, moving truckloads of cigarettes across the border. But Dad found this loophole in in the Australian constitution that there was free trade between the states if it was to the end user. So I, he just put, put put a little ad in Australasian Post back then about that you know size of a matchbox and said, cheap cigarettes, buy them cheap in Queensland or something, use your constitutional rights. And then I would come in and pack those cigarettes and send them off to the users at night. And within a year, we had probably 50 people working for us. And then that mail order business morphed into to what, something pretty big with different products. The skills you learn in that, in that sort of marketing sense, mate, did that help you, you know, as your racing career uh, in Ironfold? Uh, yeah, probably more later in life. Like when we were, you know, my racing career got better the more money we made. So obviously it gobbles enough money, <laughs> gobbles a heap of money going racing, but then let's, oh, business is going good. Let's get a Formula Ford and then... Um, to the stage where, where I could get into a touring car. Tell me about the, the Formula Ford chapter. I mean, anyone, when you look back through their careers, and it's often been spoken about on the on the podcast, everyone has a has a crack at, at Formula Ford, and it, it's such a great uh, proving ground in some respects, isn't it? Oh, it's it, it's the ultimate, I think. You, you, you're in a car with no aero, it's got mechanical grip, but it teaches you everything. It teaches you spring rates, roll bars, um, tyre pressures, brake bias... Yeah, pretty simple thing to work on. I still think you could probably go and win that championship with your dad on a trail. Like the last guy to really do that and run up the front without a proper team was probably Will Power. But I remember Will Power rocking up with his dad with the car on a trailer behind the Commodore Road car and, and he could run up front. Yeah. That was the beauty of it. But yeah, and the friends and the people you meet, and still got great relationships from people back then. Did I see um, a bit of chat on socials between you and Shane Van Gisbergen? Because Shane's actually just acquired his his, bag, his yeah. car back. Have you done the same? Have you kept a car from from your history in Formula Ford? What is it? And tell us more about uh, it. It's a '91 Van Diemen, so it was the last car I owned, and that I think it went through four owners. And Nigel Barclay, remember Nigel yes. was was our team manager at the time. He acquired the car back probably ten years ago, and raced it and then when he left and went moved back to New Zealand he said oh I'll just leave that there and Ash can have it so that was sitting there and actually raced it at Bathurst at the six hour meeting fantastic this year yeah it's cool what's that thing like around the mountain what's it can you pull sort of you know early 200s what sort of top speeds would you get out of it on Conrock yeah early 200s but it was I actually hadn't driven that car since 1991 till I got to Bathurst I did a couple of laps around all just to make sure I could still fit in it which I could, which was the joke of the <laughs> joke of the race meeting. But I slotted straight into thing and uh, yeah, I had a ball. But um, the biggest thing I noticed was the last time I drove it, which was all those years ago. I didn't really know I could drive, but I didn't really know how I could drive. Mm. You know, I could drive fast and 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 be up the front and win races, but I didn't know how I did it. And uh, going back to that car after 
you know, so many years of racing, it, it really highlighted to me what a fantastic car it is for, for learning driver technique. We, we talked about the term period correct before. Have you done a similar thing with that car? Are lots of things as you had it back in the day? Yeah, it's, it, it's as is. So it's nothing much has changed. No one's bastardised it, so it's, it's just sitting there as it was. Amazing. You touched on the debut at Bathurst in, in 91 before in that little Toyota Corolla with Jeff Full. You guys won Class C. Was that literally your first experience here, or what did you do in the in the lead up to that success on debut at the mountain? Uh, we did Sandown as well. Mm-hmm. So I remember Jeff had the car, and he couldn't. I think he couldn't afford to rebuild the motor or, or something like that. So we did some deal where um, we rebuilt the motor, chucked in a few bucks each, and this is a pretty funny story. It went to Bathurst. Uh, we tossed a coin to see who was going to start the race because we were going to do half each. That's how much we really didn't know. But anyway, we had a great day and we beat the factory Toyota team by about three laps and had an awesome time. And uh, I remember being in Dad's office like on the Monday morning, we'd come back and he's going to have a look at this. And there's a full page ad in every paper in Australia because we used to get all the all the clippings from our mail order business to see who was advertising what. It was Toyota's advertised Toyota wins Bathurst. So... We've just got straight on the phone and then I think we ended up telling them get, getting 60 or 70 grand out of them because <laughs> we were going we to sue them for ripping off our, our victory. So we actually made money out of it. <laughs> that little car, I mean, it was at a point at, at Bathurst where there were multiple classes in the field. So you would have been up against Godzilla's, Nissan GTR's, um, uh, RS500 Sierra Cosworth. So the speed differential would have been quite big and this is your first run at the mountain. What was all that like? It was pretty good. The car was, was um, obviously, you did a fair bit of looking in your mirror and you just moved out of the way and, and, and did what you had to do. So, you know, there, there was a lot of amateurs back in the race back then. So there was a fair, fair few people, like even in outright cars, that were struggling to do the lap times we were. So, yeah, it wasn't a big deal back then. It was not nothing like you see at the 12 hour this year where you've got all the Europeans, fighter pilots in there trying to rip your doors off every five seconds. So. If memory serves, it was a little a little coupe. It was a sprinter, wasn't it? Yeah, and and uh, so did, was yeah, Levin. So you just yeah. gas it? No, you didn't back off across the top? What, what did you do? Um, yeah, you rolled off the throttle a bit. You know, it was all grip. For the power it had, it probably had, a, had about enough grip. And it was to me, it was just like, like driving a Formula 4 with more grip and more power. Yeah. yeah. Did that sort of whet the appetite for you? I mean, to race at Bathurst and, and what sort of impression did that leave on you? Um, yeah, I had a great time. Like, we we had a good time. We went out every night and and uh, didn't get much sleep. I think the we slept beside the car that night in our sleeping bags because we thought someone was going to sabotage it and <laughs> fully had all these weird traditions about Bathurst. So. Like what? Like what? Oh, that was one of them, sleeping by the car and he nicknamed it Batgirl and... He had like I, he was the one that probably really got me hooked on the on the whole Bathurst thing because it meant sort of more to him than it did to me. And once he took me there and showed me what it was all about, that was sort of what lit the fire for sure. It then leads to an opportunity for you at, at BMW, mate, to work with the late legend in, in Frank Gardner, an Australian for those that don't know that raced in Formula One, um, an amazing career in touring car and, and sports car racing. What, what, what are your memories of the first time you, you met him? And, and I still, in you now, see a lot of his influence to this day. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, like Frank was a pretty unique character. So um, we'd often be on the same flight, flying back to the to the Gold Coast, and Dad and Frank 
heated up and f- but they were looking for a junior driver and I think um, the first time I really met him was at Amaru Park. It was a Coca-Cola Formula Ford round and he was there with Ron Meacham yes. and Pete Gagan was there as well. Anyway, I ended up winning the race and by a fair convincing margin, I think that, that sealed the deal and it was just a matter of how much money we had to pay to get the ride, you know, which Frank was always like, righto, you're going to pay to do the first season, I'm not going to pay you the second season and if you're any good, I'll start paying you, which I thought, okay, that's a pretty good deal. So that that's how it started. But, um, yeah, he just didn't... Uh, you knew where you stood with Frank. He told you exactly what you wanted to do and if you didn't do it, you knew about it. So the first time... I really knew he was serious. We went testing one day and he told me to do something like change gears at 4,532 revs or something. And, and I didn't do it. So he just told me to get out of the car and go home. So that, that was, that's how it was with him. So he wasn't, didn't want the engine changed at that rev limit. He just wanted to see if I was listening. So you knew where you stood pretty quickly. Is that a good way for for you to learn to work with with someone like that? Do you sort of find you gel with with um, someone who has that style? Yeah, it was the way I was brought up anyway. You know, it's sort of that's what you do, son. Okay, yeah. so that's sort of the way I was brought up with with my dad and and even the school I went to and things like that. So it wasn't a shock to me <laughs> to to be treated like that. Uh, but he was pretty hard. He was pretty hard. I saw him shove Craig Baird's helmet through the dash at a BMW once at Oran <laughs> Park. That was pretty funny. What caused that? It was actually the same thing. So they'd come over in 94, Craig Baird and Brett Riley had come over to drive one of the cars at Bathurst as the Kiwi team. And it, Craig had gone out on his run and he said, oh, I don't go over 7,305 revs or something. And then by that time they had the, the, the recall in the dash that had digital dash in it and... Craig's come in and he's just looked in the car and grabbed him by the helmet and smashed, started smashing, <laughs> smashing his helmet into the dash. So look at that, son. I'm do as I say or something. And that that sort of that was it with him too. <laughs> was Beardo probably more worried about the the good helmet, the uh, the Hollywood helmet? Yeah, I think he was shocked, mate. But it got the message across. Lots of good life lessons in all of that from the great man. What, is there one that sort of stands out for you? What, what's the either from a driving point of view or maybe an advice point of view? What was the, the standout thing that Frank taught you all those years ago? Um, it's, it's probably the driving technique. And it, it's, it's he's, what we used to do, he'd, before we'd go testing, he'd make me drive the drive a road car or or wouldn't let me in the race car. If we went to Amory Park, I'd, he'd have a BMW road car there and I'd have to drive around in the car with him for probably about an hour till he was happy that I was driving the road car properly. Um, and then he had this build-up and it, it kept going and he kept teaching me these things and I didn't really know what was going on until the first race. We went and had the first race at Amory Park and there was a bit of build-up to it and he basically said, this is what's going to happen and you're going to go here. Tony Longhurst is going to take off. Alan Jones is going to go like that, but he'll blow his tyres off. You'll come back through. You'll keep doing this lap time. You'll pass him about lap five. Then you'll catch Tony because he'll he'll go like a rabbit because that's what he's going to do. And he had this plan, and he said, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I just went and did the race exactly as a as a he asked me to, and I end up coming fourth or something in the race. And I'm like, shit, this old bloke knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that was it for me. Um, 
he had his weird things that you know you sometimes you go that's can't be correct but I just followed what he said and most of the time it, it just panned out so not one thing it was probably that driving philosophy uh, and that's it, still with me today and it still works great human being yeah 1992 BMWs I mean they were giant killers weren't they mate the, what are your memories of, of those cars what were they like to drive and, and um, you know was there a little bit of a, an art to them Oh yeah, like you had to hum the thing along, um, but braking. Like if you could master the brakes in in those cars and really maximise the braking, you'd make a lot of lap time and and be able to pass a lot of guys. You know, so that that was the key to it for sure. And that, did that braking come easily? That technique? Yeah, well, it did because I, he'd laid the foundation in the road car. <laughs> and, like, and, this is how you do it. The, yeah, and and what it taught me was if I couldn't. Now, master that technique of braking and learning how to load the front tyre properly in a car with no grip, how could I do it in a car with, with maximum amount of grip, which mm-hmm. those things had a lot of grip. So, yeah, it all started to make sense sure. towards the end of 92. You you look back over that, that chapter, mate, and the, the, you know, some great local drivers that were a part of the mix, but some unbelievable, some gun internationals that would filter through. Steve Soper, Joe Winklehock, Johnny Chicotto. You mentioned Alan Jones before. I mean, it was... That was a star-studded lineup, wasn't it? It was pretty cool. So AJ was my my teammate at that time. Uh, I was the junior driver. I think he left about halfway through the year and went and went off with Glenn Seaton. Um, but AJ was awesome to me as a young young guy, mate. I, I just In what one? He just took me under his wing and said, "You know, he was a cool racing driver. He knew all the quirks and he knew what bar to go to and." what birds to chase and all, all that, you know, we just you go here, mate, you do that. And then that Winton, don't put your race suit on at the racetrack, mate. Come out of the hotel with your race suit on and so you don't get cold at the track because you don't want to get, there's no motorhome or nothing there. We've only got some trailer and it's going to be cold. So he just had all that stuff and that six months I, I spent with him was probably laid the foundation for me to help younger people. I think the way the way that he shared and, and helped you as a young racer is what you're now doing in, in yeah, some respect. Sure, he was um, incredible, incredible, um, just to to share all that information and have a good time doing it. You, you sort of at the time I didn't know I was learning, but look, looking back on it, it was like, oh yeah, he did a fair bit for me. From memory, you appeared in in '92, mate, with with Denny Holm, the likable Kiwi who was the '1967 Formula One World Champion. He he tragically died of a of a heart attack. He loved that that race. Um, maybe it's a bit difficult to talk about, but what are what are your recollections of, of that day? Yeah, I remember everything. Like, I remember um, it was raining, and Danny was hauling the mail. He was he was like quick, uh, obviously you know all that experience. And Frank was a bit reluctant to to stick me in. He's like, Danny's doing a good job. We're going to double stint him. I'm like, cool with me, mate. It's pretty wet out there. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, he was about to come in. Uh, Campbell Little was actually running the car at the time so Campbell was there and he said uh, Denny's saying he's coming in he can't see so we all got ready and then he just he just never came in um, Frank Frank knew straight away I reckon he knew straight away what was happening and then when the ambulance didn't was, was, wasn't very quick or rushing and he, go, he basically pulled us and said oh that, 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 that'll be the end of him that's, that's Denny gone um and then the confirmation comes through and he said, right, we're racing on. That's that's what we're going to do. That's what, what he would have wanted. Um, press on. So 
one of his one of his mates gone. But the polarising thing I remember, and it, I can still see it right now. Chicotto jumps out of the car, so Johnny Chicotto's driving with with Tony, and he walks up to Frank and goes, "Where's Denny?" In his accent, "Where's Denny?" And he goes, "Oh, he's dead." And Jakarta goes, what? And he goes, dead, D-E-A-D, dead, and just walked off. That was it. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that happened, and then, um, and that, that, that was it. I suppose Frank was just, just used to his mates going that way and, and was, uh, got, got to press on, yeah. The, the, in the description you gave there a minute ago, the, it's probably hard to know, but the issue of him with with the blurred vision i mean it was pouring rain that day it was a crazy crazy race jimmy richards you know crashing at forest elbow and then all that stuff on the, the podium that would happen later on but but you feel as though that was actually linked to to what he was going through physically at the time yeah when you look back you could yeah he was obviously starting to have, have a pump failure you know halfway down conrod and was, was obviously having the heart attack and then had enough skill to just ease her over to the side of the road park her up it's on the side of the wall and get out of everyone's harm and, and just go the way he wanted to go, I reckon. I reckon that was what it was. Approaching the mid-90s, the Australian Super, Super Touring Championship starts to, to take off. Two-litre racing globally at the time was, was going gangbusters, wasn't it? You would become the king of that, mate, with, with four titles. Flashpoint for many people listening to the podcast will be 1994 at Winton. You... And your then teammate Tony Longhurst came together. He was he was seething. <laughs> he got out and started throwing punches. I can remember Daryl Eastlake, late Daryl Eastlake, yeah, hitting yeah. hitting the rev limiter in the commentary. Bit of biff. What happened from your side, and and what were you thinking as it's all unfolding? Um, well, it sort of started brewing a bit a bit earlier on because I'd been promoted probably a year earlier than I should have. So we went. I was meant to be the. Junior Alan Jones left, right? Yep. So I got pushed into the Enduros after we went to Wellington and we went to Pukekohe so I, and we did the Sandown 500 and I drove with Tony. And I remember I was probably a lot closer to him on lap time than he thought we'd got, we were going to be. Yep. And by the end of that campaign, I was like right there with him. So when we fired out the next year with the two um, two-litre cars, I started hosing him and he had to work really hard to, hard to stay with him. So... Me and him, all through that year, I'd raced him and he'd raced me harder than anyone had ever raced anyone before. Like, we were into it. The teams didn't talk to each other. He was keeping secrets about his car, you know. And Tony was shrewd. He'd go back to the workshop at night. Any good parts would go on his car. Then I had... So he had Lee Guyer on his car and I had um, Greg Wooster on my car. So it was inter-team rivalry. It was super fierce. And that's just the boiling point of it. We come around the corner, he'd given me one to try and move me out of the way. I stood my ground, we locked wheels and ended in the fence and then then he just flipped out. But I remember his words, he's, Paul, you f- you've got them f- all our cars. I don't know, can you say that? But <laughs> <laughs> You just did. It's like- <laughs> yeah, and he was steaming and slamming me through the, slamming through the thing and I'm just looking up at him and going, man, this guy's lost his shit. Anyway, it is almost you can actually see your eyes through the helmet. If people look at it on YouTube and find it, it, it is almost a look of surprise from him. It's like, what, what the hell? He snapped, hasn't he? Yeah, he just flipped out, and then um, it was all cool. Like, and then again, Tony was 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 good to me, and and you know, he, that rivalry made me really competitive. And and uh, within ten minutes after it, it was all cool. I think I actually went into the stewards' room and. 
because they were into him for the assault and all that. I think he got a 10 grand fine, but I rolled in there and tried to get him off it and it didn't work. <laughs> I was going to say, how long did it take to, to resolve it? Did you go some way to sort of quelling it or was he already over it by the time you, you got to that point of, of chatting about it? Oh, Frank was there, so it got sorted out pretty quick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the series ran um, until the early 2000s, mate. Some really cool cars came through there, the BMWs that you ran, which we'll talk about in a second, the Audi Quattros, which were fierce rivals. Looking back on that that chapter now, I loved it. I played a little, you know, a small part in a in a commentary sense for a while there. What was it from from your side that ultimately saw it not keep going or, or not continue? Was it the cost of the cars globally, the way the V eight formula was resonating here? Why didn't kind of super touring survive, in your opinion? Oh, it was two things. Obviously, you had massive competitions from 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 supercars. So, and then the, the cars just got too too technical and too expensive so the, the manufacturers bought it on themselves and you can see a bit of parallel there the way supercars have gone now you know how they started off to what they are now they just if someone doesn't draw a line in the sand soon they'll have no one to race against we'll chat about <laughs> about your your show with um with the enforcer a little bit later on and some of that that stuff about making racing great again i know you're very passionate about that is there a bmw in that super touring era that you've got a soft spot for uh, have you kept it, and and why has it got such fond memories for you? No, so all all those cars were owned by BMW, and what? So we never really owned any. Um, so I don't know where they are and what they got. And when the team demised, BMW Australia just sold up all the assets, and the car that I actually drove in '99, Steph Zelnick owned it, okay. but that was the Brabham Brabham Bathurst winning car. Yep. And then I took that to Macau and raced, raced it in the Australian Championship as a privateer. And I, I don't know where Steph sold that car, so he would have sold it back to Europe somewhere to someone. But those that was a 96 car with the 97 updates. It, it was pretty cool. It had some stuff on it that that was pretty amazing, carbon fibre prop shafts. And it actually had a pendulum under the dash that, was, that worked like ABS. So... Um, if you could, yeah, it, it, it'd swing and then take the weight, take the braking force off the inside wheel. So that's why you could brake so late and, and bomb the thing into the corner, which which no one ever, it wasn't illegal, but no one ever found it. That's <laughs> <laughs> a good little revelation there. I love it. Yeah. Um, Owen Kelly said to me for the bit of prep for this this podcast, he drove one late in the in the game with with you guys, and he still says they were one of the most fun cars he's ever driven. He said they were just dynamite. Does, did it leave you with Because you've driven some incredible things over the course of your career. Do you have the same sort of feeling about it? Yeah, you could hustle the car. Uh, it was rear-wheel drive, which which great. Everyone likes a rear-wheel drive car. It had enough horsepower to, to get you into trouble and get you out of trouble. And the um, the tyres that we're running on were, were spectacular. You know, when when I had those Michelin Kevlar tyres on, They'd send them out from from Europe, and they'd send a Frenchman with them, and he wouldn't let him out of his sight. So, towards the end of that '97 championship, we were getting special tyres for every race. They were coming up with a new development, and the guy would just send them out, Amazing. come with a come with a little froggy bloke, and he wouldn't <laughs> let him out of his sight. <laughs> How intense did the battle get with with Brad Jones and and the Audi camp during that? You know, it was almost at its zenith at that point, wasn't it? You know, '96, '97, '98. Yeah, it was like. Brad Jones and I raced each other flat out for four years and never hardly put a mark on each other's car. 
So I think that's a fair bit to do with how nimble the cars were and just the respect we had had for each other. Yeah, so I think it came down to the wire that that championship was it must have been 96. And everyone had sent new cars out, like a new BMW arrived for me and a brand new BMW, got, uh, Audi got air freighted out for Brad. Like, they were throwing dough at it. And it rained on the grid and he got the jump and I, I just couldn't get past him. But I didn't once think about putting a bumper on him. I had that much respect for him. So these days I probably would have just moved the bloke out of the way. But Brad never, Brad never moved me out of the way and I'd never move him out of the way. We just raced hard. little side story for a second, which, which I love. You did help the commentary career of our mate Lee Diffie. He's just become the first Aussie to call the Indy 500, which I think's <laughs> mega, just mega huge. Tell us the story about Iron Dude. And was he was he commentating from a couch at your place? Tell us that one. No, I've actually got the picture. So I used to have this party, party every year called the Dude's Acres Christmas Extravaganza. And we used to have a, the Dudes Acres 500, which was a car race, and the 500 meant that you couldn't have the car couldn't be worth more than 500 bucks, and there was a claimer rule. So if you rolled up with a something that was a bit 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 hot, someone could buy it off you for 500. And then we had an Iron Dude competition, which was a dirt bike, a jet ski, and a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd met Diff couple of times with Daryl, he rolls up to the party and we always had a, a commentary vehicle that we used as a courtesy car that we... What did that look like? Well, this year I think it was like a bongo van <laughs> that we painted up with um, safari stripes on it yeah. and it had a big Blues Brothers type speaker on the roof yeah. and, a, and a PA system. So the, the Iron Dude comp starts and Diff just gets on the microphone and starts commentating this race and I go, this guy's bloody good, isn't he? You know, and he's quick and he commentated the whole thing and everyone's cheering him and then we, um, they were having, the super touring stuff was post-produced, it wasn't live, so that's why it always looks so good on TV as well. And they were looking for someone to do the commentary and I said to Pete at it and I said, mate, you've got to give this guy a go. And, uh, so they messed him around a bit. They flew him down to Sydney. And anyway, he finally got in the booth and let loose on the call and the rest is history. The rest is history. He just did a great job and and uh, he went on to to be who he is now and uh, it's, it's amazing. But he never forget, he, he called me before the Indy 500. He was about to go on air and he called me and said, thanks very much to, to you and, and your dad and everyone involved. I would never have been here without you guys, so... He never forgets, mate. He's a good guy. It's the mark of the bloke, absolute mark of the bloke, and he's worked bloody hard to, to get where he is. I love that backstory. In the in the middle of the of the nineties, there too, mate. You did start playing with with V eights. There were uh, the Diet Coke BMW, uh, Diet Coke uh, Commodores, I should say. They were they were Larry Perkins built cars that they were to begin with. And how much help did you get? And how did that whole whole thing come about? It came about because I remember I remember as plain as day. Um, Frank was dead set. We're not going V8 racing. Why was he so against it? I don't know. I don't know what it was. But then Tony said, I'm going anyway. Uh, we've got the sponsorship. I need to rewind a bit because Frank got the Diet Coke sponsorship yeah. and then went to Benson Hedges and said, oh, I don't need your money anymore. I've got Diet Coke money. And they went, well, we still want to stay in racing. So within a month's period, we had double the amount of money that we had before so that's how we ended up with the two bmws two diet coke bmws that that myself and jeff full drove and then tony and 
John Blanchard in the B&H cars. So rolling to the next year, Tony's going, we're going to go uh, V8 racing. I'm doing it anyway. Ordered a car from Larry and then said, so that's how we ended up with it. And then Frank said, oh, okay, if you're doing it anyway, we might as well get two. So I ended up with a V8 and a BMW and so did Tony. That was the formation too, correct me if I'm wrong here, of, uh, of Logamo, is that right? So Longhurst, Gardner, Morris, that was kind of the underpinning name of it, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that was Frank's exit strategy was to, to wind us in. So then we ended up um, purchasing a share in Norwell. That's that's how that started and the race team and, and all that. And you know, at that stage, it was a great business decision. The, the team was flush with money. We had factory support and, and all that stuff. And then... Um, then when Tony's relationship with Frank broke down and he wanted to go V8 racing, we bought Tony's share. So then we we're a 50% holder with Frank and until he until he's um, passed away. And yeah. Formula Ford is an entry level class of single seater open wheel formula racing. 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 3.9 seconds and reaching top speeds of nearly 235 kilometers per hour. Formula Ford has traditionally been regarded as the first major stepping stone into Formula One racing after karting. You'd raced a Formula Holden in Australia in the early 90s, so you had that wings and slicks experience, but in 98 you decided to go to the US, to the Dayton Indy Light Series, just a rung, if you like, below IndyCar or Champ Car. How did that whole thing come about? What prompted it? What prompted it was BMW pulled out of racing in Australia. I was, what was I going to do? Um, I thought maybe I could go over there, get myself into to an IndyCar and maybe do the race on the Gold Coast. That was the that was that was the plan, yeah. yeah. Was there, you know, in, in the deal that you'd structured with you know, with PacWest, was that that the the long term thing that you wanted to to get to that point, or was it no guarantee that that would happen? There was no guarantee, and then um, yeah, the way I, the way I run, it wasn't going to happen anyway. So my best race over there was the first race. I think I finished sixth on the oval at um, down at Miami, and then the thing just unravelled from there. So. Tell me more about that. Was it was it mid Ohio? There was a decent one at mid Ohio. Oh, no, was it Michigan? Michigan. I had a huge shunt, and then I'd, I'd had a big head head injury, but I didn't really understand what was what was what was wrong with me. But my biggest problem was I was just too big for the car, and they didn't have a driver weight rule. So I was, I think when I was over there, I lost so much weight, I got down to like seventy four kilos or something, and I was racing guys like Demata that were fifty kilos. So it was just a big disadvantage. I could run run okay but never never run where I wanted to run and I I really didn't get the hang of I actually did better on the ovals than I did the road courses but that head injury yeah I, I had a big shunt I, I don't really remember it I know um Mick Doohan and Selena Doohan were, were there at the time and I'm they were there it was in practice and then I got three or four days there where I don't remember really what happened, but we went to Miami and the next thing I know we're in the Bahamas on holiday and, I'm, and when I think back of it, I don't really remember how I got there or, or what, what happened. So that was sort of the, the end of it, really. How did you get on top of all that then? Oh, I don't reckon I did. I reckon I went back and tried to race and tried to do a few things and couldn't really get going in the car and then I just was like, right, i just got to get home and sort out what's going on. Okay. Yeah. Did, you, did you ultimately then, you know... 
you're talking about a, a feel and reaction time thing. Is that what you're saying? You weren't as, as sharp, or what? What was it? Yeah, I just just was um, not un, not driving the car very well, and not enjoying it, and had a decent whack on on the head. So I think I pulled out like a didn't finish the last race. Came home and was just was happy just to to chill out. And I, and I was I was probably didn't really want to go racing anymore. Yeah. I was, I was at the point where, you know, I'll just go and do something else. So how did the spark reignite then? What did you, what did you do to it? I mean, clearly you loved it and had done since you were, you were little, but what, what made you keep going then? It was actually Dad. He was like, um, Bathurst is coming up. Um, do you want to do it? I'm like, no, I don't really care. He goes, well, you better do it. You'll probably never race again. I think he was more worried about me not racing again than, than me not racing again. So uh, he'd been talking to Brad and Kim and they wanted me in the Audi. So that's what happened. You know, he, he pushed me into it. I went, oh, okay, I'll go and do it. And as soon as I got back in the car at Bathurst and drove out the pit lane, I was like, well, yeah, this is where I'm meant to be. I'm back in a car. I can understand what's going on again. Those guys had been my rivals for such a long time, but it was awesome to see how they operated. Like their, their team environment was, was way better than what we had had going on at, at um, BMW under, you know, it was just a shit environment and Brad and Kim's environment was awesome. The car, what was the car like to drive to? Because it's the first time you'd sort of hopped in the rival machine. It was easy. Was it? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it just, you know, it was a very simple, easy car. You didn't have to hustle it like the BMW. It just did everything you wanted it to do to a certain point. If you tried to make it go any faster, that's as fast as it went, you know. With the BMW, you could go, well, I'll just put the balls on the dash and hang on here and then hopefully it makes it out the other side. But the, the four-wheel drive car was a, a bit easier to drive. Let's talk about Bathurst for a second here because I, I look at it, mate, and I, I feel at times like you have a a little bit of a love-hate relationship with it. I mean, you talked about the class when you had there before. I think you had another one in 90, in 94. 94, Alfred Hager. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, there'd been some success I've got a there. story about that. Too. Tell us, tell us. <laughs> so, Alfred's got a stutter, <laughs> a real bad stutter, and um, so is Pete Gagan. He's got a stutter. So, I go take Alfred down the park hotel with Mike Gagan is one of my best mates and then Pete's in there having a beer and Alfred comes in and I said oh Alfred this is Pete and he goes no 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 no, nice to meet you Pete and Pete goes are you taking the piss out of me (laughs) (laughs) so two guys had a stuttering then I had to explain real quickly that they both got stutters and they were were pretty good mates after that (laughs) on it all out (laughs) so let's get to let's get to 97 so you and and Craig Baird cross the line first there is a a rule breach and the winner's trophy ultimately goes to your teammates David and Jeff Brabham take us back to that day how did it make you feel and and how long did it take you to put that behind you? Oh, I probably didn't really put it behind me till what happened with Chaz, to tell you the truth. Really? Yeah. It ain't you that much? Oh, yeah. Look, I put the thing on pole, blitzed it, was going all right, wanted to get back in the car, then Seppi and Lyon Williamson decided that I wasn't going to get back in the car and I was, like, blowing up, like, come on, you know. Like, I was clearly way quicker than Craig was in that car and I thought why I'm in it anyway I did, they didn't let me back in the car and then you know they just they just stuffed the whole thing completely up so and then oh, the, bre- the breach was too many laps for one driver is that correct yeah and then they knew it and they just left him in there actually Tim Schenken even come down and said hey you need to fix that up and they just kept going so I'm like what's going on here so anyway I got 
Craig didn't know either. He's up on the, he's doing donuts and up on the podium celebrating. And I'm like, dude, we're in the shit here. This, we're, we're not going to keep this trophy. Um, and then I went, looked through the rule book, and then there was a grey area about continuous driving. So I said, oh, continuous driving, you did come in the pit, da 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 and I come up with a bit of a story about how we could appeal it, mm-hmm. and then obviously BMW owned and ran the team, so with David and Jeff still winning the winning the race, that they didn't really push our fight too much, so mm-hmm. they got the victory they wanted, which was great for, for David and Jeff. I don't begrudge them one bit. I think it's fantastic that they won the race, and it was fantastic from BMW, and Craig and I missed out. <laughs> When you look back now, mate, you, you talked about you know opening the rule book and looking for the, you know the continuous clause and things like that. Have you always been good at that at, at, at knowing that that rule book quite intimately? Yeah, I just I like got a logic. When I look at something, I look at it logically and and try and think how how that could you know how you could interpret that or how you could could see it. I just got a I don't know how I've just got a a really good sense of having a good helicopter view of what's going on while the heat's on yeah. so yeah even those even those races we did in the Bathurst 12 hour in, in Holty's car I'd call the strategy from the car wow yeah so you just give me the information okay this is what we're going to do what's fuels left what tyres what 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 okay let's do that so that's I don't know why I don't know how I just got an idea of how it all works so you get reinvigorated after the crash of detail before and then driving with Brad and so on and there's a, a push you know, into to supercars, if you like, that whole big Kev period. I think you had an ex HRT car as well, didn't you? Yeah. You won the won the Winton round in in one What was that? Uh, Calder Park. Sorry, Calder Park at one What am I saying? Calder Park at one um, It was a great chapter, mate, wasn't it? Yeah, that was good. That like we, I got on top of that car pretty quickly. Loved the Bridgestone tyre. Had good feel for it. Won that race. I said we're going to go places. This is going to be good. Then then we started. You know, making our own cars, making our team better, and then to sum it all up, to to be a driver and run a team, you do both things pretty badly. Okay. <laughs> that's that's looking back on it. It was just like, oh yeah, okay. I wasn't driving good. I was trying to run the team. wasn't doing that good. You you can't be a good driver and a and a good team owner. You can only be one, I reckon. The the acquisition of the of the HRT car was, uh, you know beautifully timed they were doing incredibly well to acquire that you know was a bit of a coup wasn't it it was actually James Rosenberg had it and then um, he'd had it for sale and I just thought an auto action because I whacked that that car at um, Oran Park and need a, need a replacement car and I, I actually rang him up and lowballed him and he and he took it took the offer so um, and I still got a great relationship with James right up until to these days to like amazing guy that's done a lot for the sport and helped a lot of people yeah he's one of those behind the scenes guys yeah, that he should be in the hall of fame that guy mate there'd be there'd be no one in the hall of fame without people like him you alluded to it there a moment ago so let's talk about it the fans yeah. have been asking about it on on facebook and things the 2000 fireball crash at, at oran park what are your recollections of of that and how it all unfolded yeah it's pretty uh larry stalled and i just hit the back of Larry, which was enough to bump start him. And then I stalled and then um, sat there on the grid, tried to refire the car. It wouldn't refire. And then uh, finally Mark Larkin come along and he was he was unsighted due to traffic and 
turn left straight into me. So, yeah, he had a fair head of steam up when it happened. But, yeah. <laughs> can, can you remember things like, uh, like, did you pass out? Did you, the, the G impact? What, what, what sort of stuff can you recall of yeah, the action? I remember I couldn't feel my feet or legs and, and massive pain. I thought, right, don't move, just don't move. Something's wrong here. And then, um, then it started getting a bit hot. Yeah. And somehow I got out of the car. I don't know how I got out of the car, but I, I got out of the car because of the heat. Uh, helicoptered out, went to Liverpool Hospital, was waiting down in there for a while. And by the time I got to there, they just thought I'd been in a road crash. That's what they thought. Oh, where'd you crash? So I was at Oran Park. Oh, where's that? What, what's you hit? So I was in that hospital for probably two or three days. No one had really known I was there. The only guy that come to see me was, was Gary Coleman. Chaplain. Chaplain Gary Coleman. Yeah, he was there straight away and was like, what's going on? Um, yeah, he was he was straight on. But there was nothing from supercars, no no protocols in place. I was just in the public hospital um, waiting to work out what was wrong with me uh, and then not getting what I needed to get. Like, oh, hey, i got private health insurance. I'm, I'm paid up, ready to go. <laughs> get me there. <laughs> I don't need to wait. And then eventually uh, what happened was my mum come down, she saw what was going on. I unplugged everything, pulled all the pulled all the I'm shit. Out, I'm out of here. Yeah, and just got got myself out of there. Got on a plane, and then went straight to the local Pindara Hospital here and got a specialist onto it, and then got got sorted out what was going on. I can I can vividly remember you getting off the plane in a, in a wheelchair if memory serves, and they had yeah. to sort of to sort of lower you down. What what's um, from an injury point of view, as, as we sit here now, nearly 20 years later, do you, do you still have or suffer from any effects of that? Yeah, my right, the ball of my right foot and my right toe are still numb. Really? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's still numb from that. Crazy, crazy scary. And it did huge, huge damage to the car, mate. Yeah, and the, the car, I've still got the car. Do you? Yeah, so we stripped everything out of the car sold all the parts off it and kept the body shell but that car now that that would be a 6 700,000 dollar race car now and there's people now circling around for that body shell a couple of people have tried to buy it off me because uh, it was one of the cars lands used to win the championship so it did, I think there was 11 races that year and he drove that for seven seven or eight races of that championship so and what's is it just the bent, damaged chassis. What state is it in now? Oh, you'd fix it pretty easy now. Back in those days, you'd go, oh, cheaper to build a new one. But, yeah, you could you could fix it pretty easily. You won't sell it, though? Uh, to the right guy. To the right guy. Yeah, I would. One guy could come up to buy it, and when he got up there, I agreed on a price, he, and he tried to lowball me five grand, so I just told him to f*** off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> as, on, as only you can do, mate. I love it. I love it. So... Owen Kelly reminded me, quite rightly reminded me, of a great story because there's a lot of internationals that have come through, even in the the supercar phase and and super touring phase with you. I can recall Kevin Schwantz, former 500cc racer at at, at one point. But Owen reminded me of a a great story regarding Dale Earnhardt Jr., NASCAR legend, turning some laps in one of your cars. But share with our audience because at the same time, I think... Wasn't there a big press launch happening at the track and the press had no idea that Earnhardt was behind the wheel? Is that is that correct? The story would come out later, but at the time, I'm told they didn't they didn't know. Is that right? No, no one knew he was there. So, um... Where were you? Queensland Raceway? Queensland Raceway. We, they turned up, um, towed for one of my good mates now, which was 
um, one of Junior's good mates, rolled into our garage at Sandown. Long story short, me and Owen got talking to him. They said they're coming to the Gold Coast. They come up to the Gold Coast. We started hanging out, take them up to Norwell, show them the thing. We drive around in the school cars. And he goes, I wouldn't mind having to drive one of those cars. I said, yeah, no worries, let's go. <laughs> so we loaded up the stuff. Actually, the press launch was Russell being announced. I mean, he was, I'm pretty sure he was leaving Stone Brothers to, go, yeah, to come yeah. to you, wasn't it? Yeah, in, in... And he was coming to drive our car for the first time. So we, yeah, so we just stuck the other car in the, in the trailer and they all come out. And then um, we just put Dale in Owen's suit and helmet, <laughs> walked out of the truck with a helmet on. He drove around there all day, took his mates for a ride. He would, they were in the car for about four hours driving around. Meantime, the press launch is unfolding and they don't know. No one knew he was there, mate. No one knew he was there. Gerald McDonough knew he was there and got a few spy picks, but, but um, yeah, he, he, uh, no one knew he was there. It was pretty cool. That's cool. He's, he's got a ripping podcast and he's an amazing guy. How did he, how did he go? Because they're a unique car, aren't they, compared to yeah, what he'd been doing? Yeah, straight on it, mate. You know, he's, yeah, straight on it and was like, started telling you what it was different to a NASCAR. It's got more forward bite or something. You just had all these sayings that we didn't really understand what he was talking about. But, but yeah, he, he was straight on the gas. Amazing. Am I right in saying that 2012, I think a fan has even asked this on, on Twitter or social media, mate, that it was your last full-time race was at, was at Oran Park. Is that yep. right? And it was kind of because Scafie was pulling the pin at the same time, so it probably went under the radar a, a, a bit more. But you drove like a demon that day, mate. Did, did, was it something in you or was it just that you loved that place? What, what was it that made you... Oh, Oran Park? Yeah. It's a driver's track. You know, you can, you can do stuff that makes a difference just because the topography of the track, you know. You can, you can bomb it over a corner. You can try and do different stuff. You can bomb a curb. You can, you can you know, break late because you come down the hill and, and the front gets loaded, so... Yeah, if you think about how you drive the car there, you can make speed. Lakeside's another track like that as well. And Bathurst, there's, so that's, you know, there's, there's not many tracks left left like that anymore. It's a shame that Oran Park is gone. still cool that, that Lakeside exists, isn't it? It is good. Um, they've changed it a little bit, made it a little bit easier through the kink and the, and the back under the bridge, but it's still there and you know, it gets used all the time for sprints and club racing. Awesome. Bathurst Triple Crown, so you have a six-hour win on your CV, you have a 12-hour win, very, very cool. And then the, the final piece of the puzzle, the big one, mate, 2014, as you said, with, with Chaz. I mean, that was in the history of the race. It's one of the craziest days. And I can vividly remember you um, going to the Supercars Awards at the end of, of the year um, and yeah, a little bit of a tear in your eye, I reckon. And was that... Was there a point either between winning the race and, and maybe that, that awards night where you went, that's, that's it from a top-tier point of view for me? Was, it, was there a decision that you made and when did you make it? Uh, actually, you, you said something on the night and I sort of, I sort of did a double take. Like, was that a headline? Yeah. To, one of the first persons to come and see me after the race was Roland. Mm. And he said, right, that's it, you should stop right now. Well done, mate. You've been kissed on the dick by a fairy. You've won the race. The one that, you know, whatever it was, which we were, which I was, and um, that's it, mate. Don't, that's, that's how you have to stop. And that just sat with me over. I said, okay, I need to think about that. I need to think about that. And then logically, it probably took a year to sink in or a year and a half to sink in. But looking back, it was, it was the right decision and it was Roland's advice, actually. Because if I had gone back, I just would have done a shit job, you know. I was, 
or struggling there as it was. What are your recollections of the day? Because as I, I mean, there was a stoppage, there was track break up, there was, uh, you know, you guys were well down the starting order, weren't you? So. I just got put in there to look after Chaz because I'm good with young blokes and Rod's like, hey, what do you think about doing this? And I'm like, the last time he was there, he was hanging out of the fence. We just need someone to keep an eye on him. I'm like, yeah, mate, that's me. I can do that job. No problem at all. I'm great with that. So when he got past, I think he passed Russell under a red flag in qualifying and we got sent to the back of the grid. So we, we rubbed out of qualifying and we've got to start last. So that's the first thing that went wrong that went right because that allowed me to start the car with no pressure. No pressure. So I remember at the time um, Adam's gone, you're going to start the car. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, mate. And he's like, no, you'll be right down the back. And I went, oh, yeah, okay. So I was still not quite sure about it. And I was I was still running my Dunlop Series car and I was talking to Ian Wally, Wally, you know, yeah. Wally. And he goes, so they want me to start the car. He goes, oh, that's the best place for you, mate, you know. I'm like, oh, okay, no worries. So I just sat on the back of the train and cruised along and saved fuel and had a lovely time sitting at the back of the pack all day and never really got gotten to, to any sort of strife. And um, that's, how, that's how it panned out, really. Mm-hmm. So me starting, him getting the excluded from qualifying, me starting at the back allowed us to get off sync, you know. And I was, I was happy enough where I could... I was up against the main game drivers, so if I'm sitting at the back, I'm sitting at the back, you know? Mm. Not, no big deal. How much did that one, that win mean to you, mate? Uh, yeah, man, man, everything. It was... That's probably what... The only thing I ever dreamt of. So it, it was a real life-changing experience, you know? A life-changing experience for me. It, you, you just go from being a, a dickhead with a race car to, to a hero in... in Overnight, so you know, guys that win multiple Bathurst, just that's why they're up there as a you know someone like Dick. I, I understand why someone like Dick is 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 so a hero to so many people now for sure. You mentioned Roland Dane before, team yeah. boss at, at, at Triple Eight. You two have become you know good friends. You road tripped with him in the US. What car? Where did you drive? And is it true that Roland got a tat on the trip? <laughs> a tattoo? It's a hundred percent true. So. <laughs> Uh, another good mate, Boris, said, I said, I, I said, mate, I want to get a police car. Can you find me some police car? <laughs> so he goes, yeah, yeah, man, I've got you this. Uh, I'm up at the auctions. There's a Crown Vic X Washington State Troopers car coming through. I think I can get it for two and a half grand. I said, that's the car we want. Right. So we roll down to Boris's and he's got this um, State Troopers Crown Vic patrol car there. It's still got the aerials and everything on it, the light on the side. And it hasn't got any registration or insurance. And he goes, oh, you'll be right. And he gives us, he's got a car dealership in partnership with Rick Hendrick. So he gives us this Hendrick Automotive dealer tag, like a dealer plate. <laughs> Put that on the dash. Here's my business card. If you get into shit, give me a call. <laughs> so so that we drive this thing. So we drive it back up into West Hollywood, LA. We go out to this Italian restaurant this night big night and there's all these Italian wines and Roland's been an expert on the on the wine list and having a good time trying to impress the girls we're with and then anyway long, there's a tattoo shop across the road so we get that pissed he ends up in the tattoo shop and gets a triple eight logo tattooed on his did you dare him <laughs> yeah, yeah oh yeah I just think it's I think he was trying to show off to the bird he was trying to impress or whatever. But anyway, he ended up in there. We got the tattoo. Then we went to Vegas and then Mick Doohan hooked us up for some VIP nightclub seats in Vegas. We had a big night there. Then El Paso, 
into and we finally got to the circuit. We drove to Circuit Americas. We drove to the Circuit Americas. But the last, the last um, three hundred miles, we did it on seven cylinders with an open cylinder. So <laughs> this, I've still got a video of this thing like. And he went, and I remember this is this is how good he is. He, we're like having a the wildest time, having a good time in this car. As soon as we roll up the circuit of Mary's, he gets out of the car and goes straight into Roland Dane, the the, the racing Roland Dane. It's like nice. boom, everything's business now, mate. Yeah, yeah it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. You, on, on paper, if, if people didn't know you both, you'd almost seem like the odd couple. Why is it that you get on so well? Uh, we t- I spoke about that the other day. I said we both like the same thing, girls and cars. <laughs> <laughs> he is a perfectionist when he gets in race mode. I, I do like that. Mate, I, I, if, if I'm to speak frankly for a second, some, some in the paddock, uh, you know, they look at you and they, they, think, uh, they think rich kid or they think, you know, lucky sperm club or whatever. But the Paul Morris I have seen over time, you, you've had an eye for looking out for the young racer you notice someone that's doing the hard yards trying to stitch a you know something together and you'll often go and help them with with advice or maybe even roll your sleeves up in some way to assist them in that in that process i i think there are times where and maybe the the show you're doing with russell has helped change that i think you've been a bit misunderstood sometimes do you feel that way oh yeah it's easy like i just didn't wake up one day and there's a bag of gold beside the bed you're like like now, me and my dad have worked bloody hard to have what we have, what we've got, and, and still continue to do. So um, that the business that we have, we we built together. You know, when dad was a life insurance salesman, and when we started the mail order business, we started it together. But people know me, know that. Like, like, um, but uh, yeah, you get misunderstood all the time. But what do you do? I just joke about it now and go, yeah, I'm really good, man. I chose my parents well. You know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> what 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 can you do? Did, did you ever have a day where you were you were just professional race driver? Was there a period, or were you always doing something with the business, always helping Dad out in some way? Yeah, even when I was like factory employed by BMW, I, I still went to work. You know, when I wasn't at the racetrack, I went to work. I always went to work. It was just the just what I was brought up to do. You know, yeah. yeah. Norwell Motorplex, you, you touched on that before. For those that are listening that haven't been there, you've got to go and check it out. Halfway, more or less, between the Gold Coast and, and Brisbane. It's been your home since the Frank Gardner BMW days. You spent a lot of time there. In, in addition to the, the various events, lots of driver coaching nowadays. Who, who in your mind, and maybe we're seeing it with Anton Di Pasquale, who, who are the stars of the future that, that you see massive potential in? Uh, well, definitely Anton. And to, to be honest, the, the kids or the young drivers, and 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 I'm, I say drivers because I mean men and women. So I, I, you know, the car doesn't know if it's got a, a driver, a female or a male driving it. So a driver's a driver in my in my my books. So the the drivers coming through now that are coming through karting and and at such a young age. Uh, it just amazes me how how good they are and how they understand. So, you know, Anton was the, the Anton's the first guy I took and said, "If you listen to everything I'll tell you, going back to what Frank did for me, that result will pop out." Mm-hmm. So I tried to do that with someone like Andre. Mm-hmm. I'm going to work with him. I tried to do that with Renee. They fell in love, moved to Melbourne, and just sat in bed eating Mars bars for, and basically messed their careers up. Andre got his back on track, which was great for him, but Renee didn't. 
And then um, then when Anton come along, he's the first guy that said, listen to everything I told him. And I'm sure sometimes he looked at me and thought, well, I'll just listen to what he says and not do that. But And he st- we still have that relationship today. Mm. And that's I think that's why he's so good and got through so quickly. So, I could, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes, but you learn by them. Mm. So if I can see the mistake about to happen, I can stop it from happening to him. Mm. So that's sort of what it is. And, and even before and after every race now, we're, like, there's a massive amount of communication that goes on between us. And, and you taking, no doubt, that, that helicopter view and noticing things and talking about that stuff. Yeah, because yeah, you're not under pressure. Mm. You're, not, you're not under pressure. I'm sick and back looking at it all. Um, and it's even easier now that I'm not actually involved in running the, the team. Like I can look at what he does at Erebus and have a really good view of it. You know, I can see stuff going on there. That, that even the guys in the team can't see, you know. How, you clearly enjoy this this aspect. What, what I'm intrigued about is how much of it is the driver coaching, Frank Gardner stuff that you're talking about, what, what to do in the car and behind the wheel. But every human being is different, mate. So how, how you connect with them, how you communicate with them, they all operate very differently. So a lot of it is people skill too, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it is people skills, but I, I think in... In uh, obviously, I talk to people a lot nicer than Frank. Frank was very direct, you know. It was that way. So I, I'm not as direct. If I need to be, I, I can be. Like someone with with Brock Brock Feeney, for example. Like I'll I'll give him a chance to try and join in. But if I know it's not right, not the way, I'll just say it and say, right, that's the way we're going, and that's what we're doing. And he listens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He listens, and they listen more because when you tell them what's going to happen, it actually happens. It's it's, it's pretty funny how that whole thing's repeating itself what happened with Frank and me have there been examples I, I think one um, one listener I think, his name, I think his name's Carl Phillips asked about Richie Stanaway for example did you work with him and how did that go I worked with Richie um, spent a couple of, couple of days with him I, I reckon uh, I haven't seen him since so you know you just don't you don't go to school for one day mm. and pass grade 12, do you? So the driver coaching and the way you, you, you've got to stick at it. You've got to stick at it. It's something you've, you've got to do like you would study for anything. So I think that's, um, that's where that's fallen down. He's, he's been he's been up once, I reckon, got to a fair, fair point. But if you're not reviewing what you're still doing wrong and trying to fix it, you can't really fix the problem so I haven't interacted with those guys since since they come and did the two days with them so I don't know where they are I don't know what they're doing but um, I can tell you they're not going to sort it out because I can still watch the TV and still see all the shit they're doing wrong I've heard maybe you can't tell me too much about yeah. this there's you and there is also the whisperer is this is this true and what can you tell us about the whisperer Robbo the Whisperer? Oh, good, good. People might like to know a little bit more about this. Yeah. You're talking about Robbo, the driving coach? Yeah, so Robbo's my right-hand man at Norwell. So Robbo raced, been racing for a long time and raced in Utes. Then uh, did a job. I gave him a job about 10 years ago and I just started teaching him everything I, I, I know. But he's actually he's actually probably the best driving coach in the world, I reckon. Really? Yeah, he, he is that good. Yeah. What, what gives you that sort of that sense? Why do you say that? Oh, f- firstly, because he, he's doing it every day. So something you're doing every day, and the amount of people he gets to see and and understand the the curriculum keeps keeps growing. So he, he's not stale. 
Uh, and his communication skills and the way he explains things is, is very simple and very easy to understand. Your own son, I saw on socials, yeah. Nash, the Flash, yeah. he's had his first race in a Hyundai Excel. How passionate about it is he? Is he, is he following in Dad's footsteps? And, the, and I ask that with a little bit of a kind of loaded question, mate, because he's from the gamer generation. So is he, is he into it as much as you and, and will he follow that path, do you think? That's uh, for him to work out, but... Um, I think to set the scene, he's been around racing his whole life, never really wanted to drive. Then the week before, so two weeks ago, he came to me after we finished Winton. He'd been down and seen the Honda XLs race at Winton and said, I want to go and race a Honda XL at Queensland Raceway next weekend. And I'm like, yeah, what? (laughs) (laughs) So like you did, you literally went out and bought a car, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't do anything. I rang up a a mate and said, have you got a car? And he said, yeah, I've got a car. It's got no engine gearbox or suspension in it. I'll drop it down. And then so, right, Nash, you're having a day off school and... He normally works at Norwell on a Friday anyway as an apprentice mechanic. He does a school-based apprenticeship. There's, there's, all, there's your car, there's all your shit, see if you can get it going. And then he got it going, and but it wasn't going too well, and all he did was take it to the track and it broke down every time he drove it. So, <laughs> Bit of learning. <laughs> but it was good for him, and uh, he still had a good time. Um, so now we've got to work on getting him a better car. But, uh, yeah, he, I want him to understand that um, he's – Preparation and all that's got to be got to be key, and he needs to enjoy working on the car himself and and understand where where, where it comes from. Does he listen to you? Yeah, he, he just loves it. I think he's finally worked out it's a team sport. Awesome. Yeah, he, he's like, oh, there's all these cool people around here that uh, like doing the same thing I'm doing. So I hope he just I don't I don't care how how get how hard he gets into it or if he wants to do it as a hobby or a career or whatever, as long as he's hanging around good people and having a good time. Yeah, cool, cool. Final sort of aspect of your racing career. I've got a couple more questions here, but but you've done some different stuff in the latter part of, of time. Firstly, I want to talk about sprint car racing because I, I love Speedway. Not only did you race here, but Owen reminded me you went to the Knoxville Nationals. Donny Schultz helped tee up a car for you and things like that, didn't he? Yeah, and mate, that that that, that was crazy. I don't know. I don't know why I even did that. But what was that like? That is a legendary place, mate. I was scared shitless. It was the most scared I've ever been in my whole entire life. Why? Because you just roll up to this place and it's fast. And the, the biggest track I've been on is quarter mile. So we roll up to this half mile racetrack. Um, Donnie teed up the car. It was a nice car. Everything was cool. And I'm like, you sure I can do this? And he's like, yeah, you'll be fine, mate. No worries. <laughs> I'm like, okay. If you said it's fine, I'm going to be okay. So... Um, when you roll in the gate, it, you just pull up and you pull a number and that determines where you, your grid and where you go out and qualifying. So there's no practice, there's no nothing. You just turn up and go. So I draw number one. I'm first car out, so there's not even a line on the track, there's not anything, and I've got Jack Hoddenchild one side, uh, next to me, then Sammy Swindell next side down. I'm like, what the hell am I doing in this place? Anyway, that... Jack Hoddenchild actually, um, he started giving me a bit of a hand and that Sammy Swindell just didn't even want to know who I was. And by the end of the week, a lot of people gave me a hand. I think I actually, in qualifying, I actually, uh, the header pipe fell off and I rolled in, rolled into the, um, the pit area and just sat there and the first person that was over there to fix it 
was um, Brooke Tatnell. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing, dude? No, 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 no. Oh, your header pipe's hanging off. Oh, hang on, run back to my trailer, run, run, put it back on. And so, yeah, amazing experience. And uh, it took me till, till the, you know, I think I was in the Z main or, or something, but I did it and I went and done it and it was a fantastic experience. So, not many people can say they've, they've done that race. So, it's pretty cool to do it. Very cool. Very cool. Brooke, like his, his late father, <laughs> is, a, is a gun in, in Speedway and has spent a lot of time in the, in the States. He actually crossed paths in Super Touring for a while, did, too. Drove, yeah. a, drove, a, drove a Vectra, which I think is cool. I, I want to just for a moment talk about that because it is, it is the antithesis, mate, of most of the race cars that you've driven over, the, over time. It's like sitting on a dunny with what, eight, 800 horsepower underneath your right foot, and you need the wing to work. You've got to make it work, don't you? Yeah, you got to get the wing working, and you got to have everything going for you. And to me, it was a it was a way I could go and race at the local track, and and still get my rocks off, and still hang around with people that like racing, and just get back to grassroots racing where there's people there that just want to race because they can. You know, the the commercial side's out of it, and you can go and sling some clay and get dirty and tip upside down. And I think I did it for ten years, and I, you know, I won a couple of races. Um, a few podiums here and there. Held my own in the World Series. I think I won a couple of heat races, made it into the A-Main a couple of times. But I was never and ever going to be that little extra bit that you needed to grow up growing it. I was I was never going to get that, you know. So, um, yeah, that was sort of when I sort of hit, uh, I think, two, about 50, 50, about two years ago. I thought, oh, that'll, that'll probably be enough of that. I've survived that era in my life. And there was some guys getting broken backs and... Ended up in wheelchairs and stuff, and I thought, oh, that's probably time to pull the pin on that one. <laughs> that said, though, you still clearly love that that American style of racing, and and when the Americans come to town, like Donny, for for example, I mean, the way they go about their racing really connects with you, doesn't it? Yeah, they just unload the. Well, they put it back in the driver's hands. That that that's not over officiated. So, for me, all the racing in Australia is over officiated. It's just. Too many rules, too many people telling you how to drive. At the end of the day, if you there's two guys having a race and they have contact or whatever they have, those two blokes know exactly what went on. They're the only two blokes that know went on. Just let them sort it out. Mm. That's that's the way it should be. If you had the reins, hypothetically, could be supercars, could be motorsport generally, and you could change two things, what would you change? Uh, okay. I would change. I'd definitely change the the code of conduct for racing. I'd I'd just say to, to loosen it up to or what? Yeah, loosen it up because because it never used to existed. Like there was always this code of conduct, and I raced an era where I raced against Peter Brock, Colin Bond, Jim Richards, Tony Longhurst, and all those guys. And if you got out of line, you knew it. You knew about it, and it didn't take long before you got put back in line. Like. You know, if you messed up or rubbed some the wrong way, it was get out of the car, go up and have it. Hey, young boy, yeah. When I was a young fella, that's not how we race. That's how we do it, and that's how it got sorted out. Mm. So then, when you started getting driving standards observers and all these people involved, you get put in a box that you you can't come out of. And then I think the crashes and the accident damage is actually bigger because the 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 rules are on the guy in front that's going slow that's holding the, holding the train up, you know. You can't move that guy out of the way and get on with your race. What about another thing you'd change if you, if you could? Oh, one, one thing? 
I'd make Formula Ford the premier category in Australia for open wheel racing. I'd chuck that F4 thing in the bin. <laughs> Go back to what you had. It works. Look at the people that have won it in Formula Ford. The category works. History shows that that is the best training ground for people that want to race cars in Australia. We're unique here. We don't have a massive open... The wings and slick thing just doesn't work. The chances are you're going to want to end up in supercars or, or a touring car and Formula Ford is proven to be the best training ground for, for that. Stadium trucks. What are they like to race? You won the title in 2017. Give, I mean, they had instant appeal, particularly with real young fans because the, it's action-packed, how, you know, the way you, you jump and launch the cars and things like that. It just seems completely different to what you were, you were used to. It's actually not a lot different than driving a supercar. When really? you, yeah. So you've got to, for one, you've got a spool, so you've got a lock rear end, mm-hmm. and the cars pitch and move around a lot. So the driving style I used to drive that truck was pretty similar to what I used in the supercar. Um, and the jumps is just something you get used to. You just, after you... You brace yourself? Not No. The first couple of times you do, but in the end you don't even think about it. You just send the thing over the jump and you all you're worrying about is landing and getting back on the gas. So uh, amazing things to drive. Probably the best, best racing I've ever done. Again, there's no rules. Well, there is rules. Uh, Side-to-side contact's acceptable. Front-to-rear contact is is not. So, you you know, if you get up underneath someone, you can lever them out of the way. Uh, And they're just limited on grip, limited on brakes, and they've got heaps of power, and they're they're good fun to race. And they're not as out of control as you think they are. Enforcer and the dude. Russell Ingle and Paul Morris. You two are breaking the internet with with this YouTube show. And you want to make racing great again. That's the underpinning of this of this whole thing from your point of view, is it? Yeah, well, that come from Donny Shots. So I stole his idea. <laughs> <laughs> so he rolled up. So people that don't know, when he comes and races in Australia, he runs just out of my shop here at home. We have the car, his sprint car here at the house. And we have a good time. And he rolled through the house. And he always brings some gifts, you know. He's a, he's a good guy, Donny. He rolls through the door with this uh, make racing great again hat, like, <laughs> like a Donald Trump hat. So... <laughs> So we stole his saying, but it, it's true. We got to make racing great again. It's got to be some. It's got to be good to watch. It's got to be entertaining, um, and the, the drivers and the rivalries aren't aren't there anymore. You know, we don't have that that rivalry. What's our rivalry now? We don't have one because they've over sanitised it. The, the guys that are driving the cars are too scared to say what they think, and the, you just don't. We're not getting what what people want to watch. And if you look at state of origin or football, what have you got? Rivalry. Mm. We don't have that anymore. Mm. I mean, heroes are, are important, but oh, uh, but Ford, we don't have any more. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back over time, though, there there have been guys that have been the have been the the arch rival, if you like, and that's actually a good thing in sport, isn't it? When, when you've got people like that, yeah. If you look at someone like Russell Engel, he's come back from Europe. He's gone. Oh well, how am I going to make a living and survive with this? No one's being the bad guy at the moment, so I'll be the guy in the black hat. I'll, that'll do me. Mm-hmm and carved a career out of it. When you do that show, tell... um, Don't give away too much in the way of secrets of it because I think it's... But do you you rehearse and how do you go about it? No, not at all. So... You rock up, just rock up and go. Yeah, I get a a one-pager probably five minutes before. So Russell come to me with this idea about three weeks before the show actually happened and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. And I'm like, I wonder if you'll run out of steam here. (laughs) 
And I'm, I'm busy doing Like, I'm busy, you know. And he's, hey, dude, da, da, da. I'm like, yeah, okay, mate, fantastic. Push on. Good on you, mate. That's exactly what you should be doing. I reckon you're going to hit the spot there. And about a week later, I'm up in my office and he goes, I'm ready. I'm like, come down. I'm like, what? I walk in the bar and he's got the, all the cameras set up. I said, oh, he's pulled it off. <laughs> and, and away we went. And that's how, I think that's why it, why it sort of impacted because we're – yeah, he's right. he knows what he he's put the show together. He's produced it. He's done it all. But I don't know what's going to happen, really. And the essence um, is straight talk, basically. Is that what it is? Yeah, straight talk, and and not being afraid to have an opinion and upsetting someone. So everyone's like the the biggest thing people say to me is, "Oh, what did supercars say?" I'm like, "Who gives a f- what they say?" Mm. And like. People, you need a difference of opinion. You need—I might be wrong, I might be right—but you—you got to put it out there. And I'm sure there's some things I say that people don't like, and some things they say that they do like. But that's—that's that's what makes the world go round, isn't it? A couple of fans have asked the driver or drivers when you look in your rearview mirror that you kind of wince and go, "Not you." Is there anyone that's ever been an intimidator in the field for Paul Morris? No, I've never really been intimidated by anyone. Mm. So, I, I always, no, I, I don't have anyone that I'd think, not you. I just like, I'm, I'm ready to go with anyone, you know, no problem. Five track, I mean, you've been to the Daytona 24 hour, you talked about Macau before, you've done all sorts of things around the world. Is there one track? And, and the common answer we obviously get is Bathurst, but is there one track for. Yeah, for me, it's Lakeside. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a. It's just badass and fast, and and the similarities. If you had a car that could go around Lakeside, it'd be a good Bathurst car. So, but I just love Lakeside. I could, whenever I race there, I knew I could win. Yeah. Is there one that got away from you? A, a race, a result, a championship? Oh, we talked about '97 Bathurst before, but what's the what's the one that sticks in your mind? Oh, that's the one. '97 Bathurst, like to for me that 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 was the race. I'd worked all year for it, trained my ass off, you know, put the car on pole again and there was a all everyone from Europe and Super Touring was there. That that was the one that, that got away for sure. You may not own it. You talked about some that you, you have before, but is there a car that you get a little glint in your eye where you go, you know, that's uh, over my 25 odd years of racing or more, more than that, is there a car that, that's special in your heart? Yeah, that's the 96 Super Tourer. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 the car. Why? Give us give us a bit of a rundown for people on the you know the features, what it was like to drive, and why it's it's so special to you from the tyre point of view. I guess I just felt part of the car. I think um, what what happened with that car? You kept getting updates all the time. So this is a factory car, and every couple of weeks or months, or a little thing had come along, or an engine upgrade, or or this or that. So you you just Every time you got in it, it was like something new's in that car and it's going a couple of tenths faster and I could just gel with it. I could put that car wherever I wanted it, drive it how I wanted it, understood how it worked and I felt like I was invincible in the thing. What was the history on it? Who drove it before you? Often they came from... from Yeah, it was a Bugazzi car, so it was in their fleet out of Italy. I'm not sure who the driver was. Yeah. Road rule that drives you mad, mate, when you're on the, the... Anywhere, because you travel all over the country with your with your racing, is there road habits that people have that drive you mad? Oh, the worst one for me is the the green arrow that tells you to turn right. Yeah. Like 
you used to be able to work out that there was no traffic coming and actually turn right. So now we've got all these people that were just breeding idiots, mate, that just sit there and wait for this green arrow to, to, to turn right. You just sit in your car half the day waiting to turn right. So, you know, that's the one that, that, that bugs me. Daily driver, and finally, have you got a little resto project that you're currently working on? If so, what? Uh, my daily driver, I just bought the new um, Ram 1500, so love that truck. I had F250 for... 15 years. I actually had bought Marcus's amp, Marcus Ambrose F truck off him when he went to the States and that, that was my daily driver up until about um, four weeks ago till I got the Ram. Awesome. Yeah. And is there any more resto projects? You talked about your Formula Ford before. Is there anything else you got on the go? No, no, not really. I'm not I'm not really into road cars. You know, unless it's got a number on the door, I'm not, not really into it. <laughs> yeah. Mate, it's been awesome to sit here and, and to chat with you and reflect on an amazing career, the, you know, the raft of titles that you've won, the Bathurst wins, as we said before, the Triple Crown that you've, you've ticked off. I think it's, a, it's enormously special. And I owe you a little debt of gratitude, and that is back in 2000, you gave a little Greenhorn reporter a chance to drive a supercar <laughs> at Queensland Raceway. Probably still got it on replay at home, mate, but I was very proud of that day and maybe gave the gearbox boys and the engine boys a bit of work to do, but I, um, I have very, very fond memories of that, so thank you very much. Oh, mate, I have fond memories of you and your Aussie racing car career <laughs> <laughs> at Pinson Motor Raceway. <laughs> Let's not bring that up. Cheers, mate. Thank you. See ya. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.